This is a Media Lab podcast. You know, Dave, things are getting a little bit colder as we get back to home. I feel like I should get, I don't know, like a, a gigantic fur coat that I can just bundle myself up in. So you want me to call you Mr. McCabe? Please. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. The other thing I, I think we need to point out here is some plot progression. I, I mean, just regular conversation between you and I. I know that people have been wondering out there. I've, I've seen the letters. I've seen the forum posts. People about, send us letters uh, in the, space. Yes, keep going. The re- the rest of these diamonds that we had. And we all know, of course, diamonds. that I gave up half the diamonds back to the person that was chasing after us. I gave the rest of my diamonds up to some stops along the way. I just decided to give it away because I'm, I'm very, I'm a good person, Dave. Ooh. I've kept a sole diamond in my possession. Just to remember the journey that we've been on over like the last 12 months. It's a long trip back here. Exhausting. Older. Some might say. Yeah. yeah. So do you want to inhale some asbestos or... <laughs> Yeah, I, well, we are Canadian and, uh, you know, it's part of our culture. That does remind me, Dave, because of Canadian law, we have to do this entire opening again, uh, but in French. Mm. Uh, Sacre bleu! Comme si, comme ça. Très bien. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again, this is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. Uh, je m'appelle David. Oh, yeah, I did it. <laughs> yeah, you did it. <laughs> and I'm the machine. A podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then, you know, another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. And now we're on our way back to Earth. Like for two more weeks, I think. Like we are so close. Can't get there fast enough. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film Mon Oncle Antoine. Ooh. Or My Uncle Antoine. My Uncle Antoine. Hey, Antoine. <laughs> Elise, that's Baptiste, huh? Baptiste? Eh, mais faux. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, I feel like I've just been talking nonstop since we started this podcast here. Tell me what your history is, though. To set the stage for this movie, this seminal Canadian work. Never heard of it. <laughs> What's your history with Canadian film? Adam McGoyan? I don't know. Oh. No Denis Arcand? Uh, no Denis Villeneuve? Oh, it's Villeneuve. Yeah, he's, he's French-Canadian. I yeah. thought he might be French-French. Yeah, James but- Cameron? James Cameron, I mean, film here. Yeah, I was going to say, is he Canadian? I don't know. Who's, uh, who else? Give me some more names. Uh, um, they make weird films. Xavier Dolan? No. We make weird films. These are films. all the French directors yeah. oh, I know. Who, uh, uh, I watched Guy, uh, That's a good movie. Yeah, Atanaranjit. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the Fast Runner. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a, a good great movie. movie. I was going to say Robbie Burns, Gary Burns. No. 
There's Gary Burns. Nothing. He did Way Downtown. Have you ever seen that movie? Way Downtown. I watched the one where the... Mm. Is that the one where they're uh, stuck kind of like in the Plus 15 down in Toronto in the base? Yes. That's a good one. Actually, it's in Calgary. It's filmed in Calgary. That's what I thought. I keep telling people it's on the Plus 15 and then they told me it the is. stories in Toronto. I'm like, doesn't look like Toronto. No. I grew up there. But it's in Calgary. It looks like the plus 15 to me. You can literally see the Eaton building in Yeah, that, that in was that an interesting movie. I actually discovered that movie at the same time. There was a Canadian sitcom about lawyers that starred a few of the same actors. Oh. We were watching that on yes. Showcase. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. remember. But that was- Not a, the Vinci's Inquest. That's something different. No, but, I don't yeah. remember what it's called. There's only like one or two seasons, but I thought it was mm -hmm. hilarious. I watch Canadian content. Here's the thing, Dave. This is me where I get to push up my glasses. Nerd. I get to become super pretentious, even more so than normal. Is that possible? Is there a number of larger well, than see. 10? We're going to okay. see. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this in our bonus episode on the red violin that went out on our mm. Patreon feed. So to reiterate, I took a course in university called Canadian Film. Mm. And I was introduced to a lot of different things, a lot of concepts, how we are how we are different than the United States and even England and other English speaking countries around the world and what our film industry looks like. One of the biggest ones, of course, is that a lot of our films are funded by the government. Like there's not a Hollywood where there's a, you know, a, a, a private sector organization that creates a bunch of films. A lot of our films that we know about or break through are funded by the government. So that's one thing that's different. I'm horrified that you support communism. The other thing is subject matter. Canadian film is, I think, very similar to Canadian literature, which I also took classes on in university. Margaret Atwood. Which is, the, yeah, we only, <laughs> we only adapt Margaret Atwood. <laughs> there's one author. Because Canada is a bit of a different has a much different history than the United States does, mm -hmm. just in the way that our colonialization happened, but also because of the introduction of the French here, as well as the English settlers, as well as the First Nations people that, are, that were here at the time. It's just a very different dynamic in our culture. We're not going to talk all about that. <laughs> but what I can talk about, again, in Canadian literature, Canadian film, the struggle really is like, how do we define ourselves? Like that seems to be the central question that most of the films and most of the stories and, and books that are written are like, how do we define ourselves? Never necessarily specifically about like what makes Canada Canada, but that is kind of the subtext. How do we define ourselves as Canadian as opposed to all the other influences that we have. Deeply, deeply inspired by documentary filmmaking. If you go back in time for the first like 20-ish years, the only types of films that Canadians made were documentaries. And that has influenced a lot of our filmmakers that have come from here, where they use documentary style and documentary techniques in order to tell their story. I'm now going to hold up this book that no one can see because we're not wow. recording the video this here this week. This is an audio podcast. This is the textbook that I did. Which is called Weird Sex and Snowshoes. I mean, that's that has Correct. to be a title of an Adam McGoyan film. Well, the forward is by Adam McGoyan, <laughs> as you can see down here. <laughs> so you are correct. It is weird how so often, broadly speaking, a lot of Canadian film includes harsh winters. Yes. And there is usually a scene of something weirdly sexual that is going to happen here well when the winter I mean, David, is harsh uh, david cronenberg is another great example right, cronenberg. Of i was filmmaker. trying to think of there was one more weirdo that we've made um <laughs> if you're stuck indoors and it's cold what else is there to do but have weird sex kyle when, when we talk about weird sex though it's not just like you know like an existence or something like that where there's like <laughs> the weird human plugs and hybrid right. guns and stuff like that like that <laughs> but we're also talking about 
weirdly enough, like so many Canadian film either includes incest or incest sort of uh, narratives. Having sex with dead bodies happens in multiple Canadian films for some reason. The Frozen. I mean, what? honestly, you're there in the like, tundra. Yeah. What else are you going to mm-hmm. fuck, Kyle? <laughs> this wheel blubber <laughs> that I have come across, well, thankfully. It was seal carcass. It's still warm. Uh, I, there is a difference, of course, between Hollywood and Canada. I think that's explicit. It's obvious. But I'm going to state it anyways. From my position, maybe you tell me if I am... If I'm wrong, David. Wow. Got so formal. I feel that the vast majority of English speaking Canadians look down on Canadian film. Yes. Where it's like, eh, we don't make anything good. Yes. Why why celebrate it? Yeah. There's there's that kind of mentality. Yeah. Broadly speaking. Yeah. And I think particularly in the uh, populace, not the nerdy cinephile thing, because there's a strong... Mm-hmm. A specific contingent, you know, the people that made film festivals what they are today, mm-hmm. you know, they'll respect Canadian film more, but the broad audience, they don't give a fuck. I, I couldn't name, I've seen some of these films, I couldn't name these directors. And I know mm-hmm. who David Cronenberg is, but he didn't come to mind. Who still talks about Existence or Crash, right? Yeah, and he, he did move to Hollywood. Well, same thing with, if we're going to include people like a James Cameron right. or a um, Norman Jewison, who is also Canadian, who moved down to the United States. I actually think if you look at their filmography, there is very Canadian style content in the stuff that they make. Do the aliens and Avatar have sex? They have weird sex. Yeah, yeah they have weird sex in those movies. Mm. More so, it's it's actually very interesting how often there are strong female characters mm. in Canadian film. Like that's sometimes what the focus is, which James Cameron has in basically every single film he's ever made. Right. Why make that very clear distinction between English-speaking Canada is that I don't think that's the same outlook that people from Quebec particularly have about the filmmakers and the creators that are coming from there, where they have definitely celebrated and get really overjoyed again, whether it's a Denis Arcand or Xavier Dolan or uh, Denis Villeneuve who started making films over there. And the guy who made the Barbarian Invasions, who I'm blanking on his name right now, well, but there seems to be the celebration when those films are celebrated and they go on to, to bigger success. And I think, too, you know, the Francophone community as a total uh, stereotype, they don't want to speak English. And so the consumption of English content is not going to be a priority. So if you have a mm-hmm. French, lang- particular Quebecois, French language films and content coming out, and it's all coming from the National Film Board, they're going to prize that and, and lean into that more than watching uh, James Cameron's Avatar, in my opinion. Sure. It is interesting doing a little bit of traveling. Once you get to the east side of Quebec and go into New Brunswick, there are places where, not that... I'm more unwelcome than usual, but they literally will not speak English, except unless you're in a retail environment where there's tourism. But for the most part, it's mm-hmm. it's a, such a unique culture. Canada's weird that way. I mean, no, actually, it's probably not that unique. I was just thinking about this, doing the write-up. Lots of countries where that happens. The other thing, too, I know that you don't care about awards. Anything, yeah. It's been well documented on this. But because of how it's structured at the Academy Awards or the Golden Globes or other other places where it is specifically well it used to be called best foreign film it's now called best international feature that's what it's called now i don't know they changed it. but it specifically cannot be in english right so it doesn't matter if it's from a different country australia in canada new zealand if it is in english it cannot be nominated in that category even though it is an international feature weird and so all of the times that canada has been nominated in that category has been our french filmmakers Mm. who Mm. have submitted that into there and how so many of them 
became internationally prominent was because oh the snooty award show watchers like me are like oh i should like support this canadian film right, that's right. in in the running for the five best international features this year unless it really broke through like you have to really break through yeah. so that you were like nominated for best picture or something like that if you're an english speaking person making a film in canada and it's not gonna happen because the sex is too weird <laughs> That's correct. And as we've been saying over the last few weeks, we don't like sex. So no, we don't like right? sex. Right? It's so gross. It's just so gross. <laughs> Fluids. Blech. Ugh. You got to take your clothes um, off. Robot sex is all about the fluid exchange. I, I'll be I, you know, creating a course all about Canadian I was going to say, yeah, this feels like a lecture. Attend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just get so passionate about this stuff because I like it. But 300, 300 level course here at UFC. Taught by Professor right. Kyle Marshall. The other, I guess, thing is just the history with this movie in particular. I think you just already said that you've never, never heard, of, heard it. of this film before. Yeah. I do find it a little bit weird. Well, I don't know. I, because I'm so in it at this point, I was introduced to this film in that university course, mm-hmm. Introduction to Canadian Film. Because I just like looking at like the sight and sound polls right. and what other people think are the best features. Like This continually reaches like the top spot of best Canadian film of all time. Mm-hmm. On those features in international polls, even amongst the elite of Canadian film themselves. This is usually the film that is like the best film from Canada ever made. Yeah, I've never heard so of it. So that's... Well, I, you know, when I I learned about that and when I looked at the top 10, I don't recognize anything other than mm. a tenor I was just thinking, you know what other movies should be on there? Uh, it's, it's a Bon Cop, Bad Cop or whatever. Bo, yeah, Bon Cop, Bad Cop. Yeah, <laughs> It's actually a pretty yeah, good yeah. movie. I can't believe they made a sequel though. Uh, but weirdly enough, even though I watched clips from this movie mm. in that class, I never have actually seen the whole thing. For some reason, we picked other movies to watch in full. Maybe they just thought that everyone had seen it already. Like the to the professor really thought everyone knew about the movie already, so we never actually delved into it a whole lot. It was hard to get. But in this book, mm-hmm. Weird Sex and Snowshoes, it's referenced all the time. Mm-hmm. Like in every chapter, it's like and just like you would know from this movie, and this is an example of this movie, there's an interesting uh, breakdown of like the cliches of Canadian film and whether each film like how many check boxes you can do. You are a huge nerd. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome to our film podcast, everyone, where we're not supposed to like things. It's <laughs> awesome. I can't believe you brought a, po- a textbook. You brought a textbook to I an did. audio I a textbook podcast. Today. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to finally actually watch this whole thing uh, with you, Dave. So I guess we might as well do that now. So me and Dave are going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about... Do you want to give it a stab at this, Dave? Do the French pronunciation? Oh, is it mon oncle, oncle? Da- is oncle. it Antoine? Yeah. No, it's just Antoine. Mon, mon oncle, oncle yeah. Antoine. We're going to get some hate mail. Oh, for sure. I'm trying to think of how to say that in French. Tent? Tent? Le tête. Tent? Well, let's have a tête-à-tête here, Dave. Mm-hmm. As we... Uh, we, should, we could have even Google translated something in French, but we didn't. We did not. No. Con Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, mm. though, which is locally grown, community supported. We, oui. we, oui. the <laughs> Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Oh. And in fact, we are sponsored by the Alberta Podcast Network this week. Nice. So we should go and listen to one of our other great shows. So a lot of us out there. There is. Yeah. And we're going to queue one up now. In the small prairie town of Hillview. In the center of town, Hillview's single traffic light shifts from red to green. 
which has no effect whatsoever as Main Street is, as usual, completely devoid of traffic. Bored teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. An abandoned cityscape lives half buried in the sand. Welcome to the multiverse. It's dangerous. The entire right side of her body looks like uh, just a glitched out mess. It's stupid. And then I immediately uh, turn around and punch him. It's got parent groups in a panic. Just don't do it, okay? Hugs, not slugs. All right, thank you. <laughs> and it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Well, your funeral and ours, I guess. And then Angus points and fires. There's an explosion, a burst of slime goes flying. Your reign of terror has come to an end. It, it kind of scrambles and glitches out. And you can see that this, this is like a smoking crater where your ray gun hit. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Quantum Kickflip, a Slug Blaster actual play podcast part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Wasn't that show great, Dave? Wow, I love acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That... I love that insert show here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? Oh, yeah, that one. That one is really good. That's the one where, uh, and they do, you know, That's and up. they talk about the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Episode uh, 62 was my favorite. like that. Yeah. What do you have for me, Dave? <laughs> I wonder how that will work when you put that into the final. I get to talk about Park Power. Park Power. Mm. Our episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local, Kyle, local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates. I also can offer some natural gas (laughs) for free. Awesome service and profit sharing with local charities. Winter is coming, Kyle. It is. I think it's here. Uh, I don't know. It's been really warm. So we'll see. At least it was a month ago. Uh, Energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great- Wait, when? When winter is coming. Should we do like a Game of Thrones? That's over. It's over, right? Nobody cares. cares Nobody cares. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility- uh, Look at their utility bills and ensure they are on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligation comparisons. I wonder how deep, have you ever looked it up? I wonder how detailed it would be. I should get a quote. We should do that on air next week. Actually, we should. (laughs) Hmm, no. (laughs) No. Actually, we should cut that out. We're going to get in trouble for that one. If you decide to I switch... Prefer, I prefer Quebec Hydro. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you decide to switch providers, it's easy. And you can feel good knowing you're supporting a local business and helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right. Well, let's get bundled up here, Dave. Uh, sorry, Putin? Putin. 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 Yeah, I can't eat curds. Let's some curds, some gravy. Fucking lactose, man. Vegan is, curds? Is there any vegan? Yeah, I was going to say, is there vegan curds? They do vegan everything, but it's not a curd. Do you know what I mean? Like if, <laughs> it doesn't squeak. It's, it's just, if you're going to eat a curd. Well, Dave, we did uh, take the time to sit down, watch this Canadian feature. The best Canadian film of all time. Second best now. As said by so many yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Apparently best, Fast yeah. Runner has overtaken the spot quickly oh has it really yeah. okay well according to the website you know, i've watched that film three times in full that's a three hour plus movie i've watched that in full three times i'm trying to remember i think i just rented a blockbuster and watched it once i, I for some reason yeah. i started thinking did i actually own that movie but i don't think so um got to right. see a naked man and i always wanted the uh, sunglasses because they're pretty cool 
Yeah, the bone glasses, right? The slits. Yeah. Yeah. Which they actually do wear. That is a thing. Oh, I'm sure. That people wear. Like you were talking about at the beginning. Up in the north. Yeah. Documentarian based, whatever. Well, if we ever get to the year 1998 or whenever yeah. that movie After came out, 2000, yeah. maybe, maybe 2002 or something, something. whenever that I think I watched it with yeah. Helen. Yeah. 2000 or something. Regardless. So this is not a, it's not a podcast about a tangent, Dave. <laughs> we are talking about Mon Oncle Antoine. Oh, nice. <laughs> no, that's pretty that good. Yeah, I'll accept that. French enough for what are, me. What are your quick thoughts? What are your quick thoughts on this movie? So like so many of this type of film we watched this year, I have two thoughts. The first is my initial thoughts as I sat through this, which is like, ah, yeah, it was, it was fine. And then uh, my reflection after learning about what this movie actually addresses both in the evolution of film in Canada, but also the awakening of Quebec nationalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that case, like thinking back, I didn't watch the movie second time, but thinking back of what the movie is depicting, it is, uh, I can understand why Canadians like it so much or Canadian movie nerds like it so much. I can also understand why no average Canadian will have ever heard of this film unless they've taken sure. a Canadian film studies course. I, I will also point out that this played on the CBC a lot. Really? <laughs> Apparently. I, I just watched the, the World 70s of Disney and 80s, but. on CBC. Right. <laughs> we are weirdly aligned this week, Dave. Mm. I did have some context for this movie as far as like, oh yeah, I can see some of the ways this fits into like the history of Canadian film. There was that documentary style that really, it feels like it's a documentary in some cases. Yes. Has the snow, right? It does kind of have that weird sex scene. This is normally... The type of movie that I really like, where plot is kind of secondary. Like, there is stuff that happens, but really, this is a movie where we're kind of hanging out, where we're just watching this family interact, this community interact with each other. So it's kind of like, in different ways, there's certain films like by Mike Lee that do the same thing as this. But I was also thinking of um, the, the Before trilogy with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, where what are those films? Like, yeah, you can, like, bring things out there if you want. But really, it's two people talking for 90 minutes. Like, really, those movies are two people talking for 90 minutes. But I like those types of movies a lot of time. As, as long as I, like, I lock in with the characters, it's like, whatever. I don't really care if anything, like, major happens. I just like hanging out with these people and seeing a little bit more about them and doing this character study of these people. But like you, what I was missing was the cultural context within Quebec at this time, which I didn't, I didn't get. I'll be very upfront. I did not understand it until researching it afterwards. And then it was like, oh, well, that makes way more sense why they focus on this and why this means this. And people contemporarily in 1971, especially in Quebec, but yes, in the rest of Canada, would probably have gotten it. They would have just yeah, known they were right in it. Yeah, what they were absolutely. Yeah. But me in 2021 being an anglophone in Canada, and not really knowing that, and I mean, this, to throw my teachers under the bus, not really being taught this stuff in, in school. I just didn't have it. I just did not have the context. I was trying to remember what I learned. You know, Canadian history classes in the 90s were you know founding. So when did the settlers yeah. come? Now when did we fight with America? And when did we like how did the French lose and win and all that shit? Hudson's Bay Company, Furriers, all this like very ancient founding father stuff. Yeah, I, from my memory, we spent so much time talking about like settlers, like them yeah. coming over fur and trade. discovering it's Canada, all about and that, fur. like the Real Rebellion and right. stuff. You want to learn a little bit, but I remember very specifically. At least in Alberta, I know the curriculum in grade, I think it's 10, grade 10 or 11, where you do 
a bit of Canada, and then it's the U.S., and then Russia, they talk about a little bit, too. Communists. Um, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm complaining with that. They were doing, like, different oh, government whatever. systems yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Regardless, all I remember is, like, I remember us, like, talking about, like, the Canadian Constitution and, like, the Meech-Lake Accords, mm-hmm. which are actually pretty important in the formation of Canada as we know it today. And I think we spent half a class, if that, on all of that stuff. Yeah. Which... You know, you just blow past it. You just don't really spend a lot of time, or at least I did not spend a lot of time learning about that stuff. It should also be stated, you're very stupid, like bag of broken rocks dumb. I mean, we we learn about uh, what comes in 80, you know, the the little altercation where uh, Trudeau's got to call in the war crimes, you know, brings the tanks. Mm -hmm. What, uh, who's kidnapped? I don't even remember. Uh, Levesque? Yeah, the, the, um, whatever. The something crisis, yes, but yes. um, (laughs) Bring in, brought in the tanks into the yeah, city. Is it like 1982 or uh, so? That's that. That's one. Let's say tent pole, flag pole, and then before that, it's Louis Riel, and then you get you yeah, know Mackenzie like you, World War Two. You get sort of deep, but you get some of the white Anglophone leaders somewhere in there. Learned about the railroad. I remember learning about the railroad. Right. <laughs> and then in Toronto, I mean, you must have learned stuff about Alberta. We learned stuff about Ontario. Yeah. But there is a gap. It's not so much that, I mean, French, for example, is still a required course in the 90s until grade 10. And it's just- Yeah, uh, I'm a bit younger than you. So I had to stop. I didn't have to learn French past grade five. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I, I think it was required in high school in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I I could be wrong, but that's how I remember it. So I had no idea. It, it's fascinating. You know, Ontario, just as yeah. a quick- but, but like you, just before you go into the, this point, I was just going to say, like you though- I appreciate the movie more after I learned that information. Right. It kind of fit some things together. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, you, you text me, do you know anything about the quiet revolution? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't know anything about, um, you know, asbestos strike. I, I watched, uh, I sat down with a, uh, a speaker at that photography studio thing and he's from mm-hmm. Toronto. Now he's in DC, very prominent photographer. He got his start because of the asbestos mines in Ontario and his, um, his, I think his dad or his uncle or something was involved in that. So his first assignment as a young man was just taking pictures of these defunct mines. I didn't even, like I know asbestos w- was uh, being mined in Quebec and that's it. <laughs> and then it's right, like nothing, right. I got nothing. Bombardier. I mean, I, I have no, I have nothing, right? <laughs> Montreal's right. islands, man-made. You know, honestly, St. Lawrence River. St. Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, they just skate on it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Papa Noel, a lot. I don't know. <laughs> right. It, it was fun. It was kind of interesting Wikipediaing some of this stuff after the movie. But I think this is the best part of our podcast, at least for me, is I get to watch it as an ignorant plebe first mm-hmm. and then make a sweeping generalization. And then uh, we talk about it. I'm like, oh, you know, there's more to this yeah. than I thought. So, so I did like feeling in that context after I watched the movie again for like you on first watch i i liked it more than you i'm gonna be pretty confident i liked it more than you because I, I i was just deeply fascinated by this little town like here's my english major reading of this movie a little bit where i think it's really fascinating we see this family who both is like giving life and taking life at the same time they both run the general store giving food and clothing and then that sort of thing, but are also the undertakers of this small community. And so I thought, okay, that's a really interesting concept of, of how that gets inter, uh, interacted with and stuff like that. And also, and, we, and we've seen this countless times from the American films we watched here in 1971, of this seemingly like idyllic place maybe, but at the very least, the, the mass we use out in society versus what is actually happening behind doors. And so here we see like a guy's 
is it his brother's wife like, like is antoine the brother to the I, guy who's sleeping with his I wife i don't know i didn't understand okay. so that family dynamic is weird they're not their kids you get this right. feeling like I, I don't even think the girl is related to antoine and his wife i think they're sheltering He's, her she's not She's not. That's why I was getting really weirded out at, at first. Were, like, isn't that your cousin? Yeah, it got a yeah. little so French. But, but I guess what the, oh, regards I was ta- <laughs> they're French. <laughs> Send your letters to Dave oh, at. Uh, um, regardless, it was just like there is this idea of trouble brewing. Like I, I like I understood enough about like okay, there feels like there's like this impending doom coming. Yes, there's the asbestos mine, the death that happens of the young kid, which I take to mean that he's got asbestos poisoning. At least that's how I read that. I didn't even go that uh, far. At the very yeah. least. I thought it because the kid Oh, does the kid work at the mine? He's the kid in, in the truck at the very beginning that part with his was, dad. Yeah. And I, his dad pieces out and then he dies later on. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what was going on with that first cut because they get transported back in time like the the owner of the mining company comes in a fucking horse-drawn carriage you know the undertaker takes a horse to go get the body like it was just very anachronistic that by the end of the movie i forgot there was a truck in it i run on 120 horsepower well i think that's the point maybe i mean it's the 1940s it's set in the 1940s so not everyone is going to have a truck at this point in time so yeah part of the people are going to be using horse-drawn carriages and some people won't it just depends on how especially in Quebec rich you are probably like the church is on the top of the hill like imposing there's the asbestos mine there's this again this bubbly tension between them and, and what's going on and then this confrontation uh with death at the end as the father comes back right finds his uh son dead in the middle of the road and brings him back in to to grieve with the family sort of thing so there's enough there that I was sure. I was interested and I was transported a bit yep. but I would be lying if I said like, oh, I love this movie. Like I'm not there necessarily, maybe on a second viewing. Cause that's the other thing that I have to be contend with is these are often first viewings for the year 1971 sure. for me. And oftentimes I find that after second or third, that's when I lock into, to a movie sometimes. And right now it's just, I like it, but it's not like I deeply love this movie either. I was just thinking about your comparing it to the link later movies or, or movies of that nature. I think the one major difference is that this movie follows the teenage boy Benoit and Benoit is more of an observer than a participant and you know we do get insight into how he's dealing with all these changes but it's not as engaging as watching him uh, have monologues like if he if the script was more of him kind of talking to his friend or, or flirting with this girl and, and being able to kind of uh, expound his experience a little bit more to the camera, right. I think it would be more engaging from a viewership perspective. I Like you brought up at the very beginning in this documentarian style, they want a picture of the town itself. It's not even really about the uncle, Antoine, until maybe halfway through the film. I mean, he doesn't really start coming into the movie story itself until after the boy dies and they start on their woodland adventure. He's on the periphery. He appears nearly mm-hmm. in every scene, but he doesn't feel like an important character. I didn't even realize that he was Antoine until like 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> um, it, was, it was almost getting to that point where we talked about Clute, right? Where it's like, why is this movie called Clute? Right. Um, I, I think there's enough in, in this movie that's like, okay, I get It's not as bad as At least why it's right. called. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think the other thing, before we get into backstory, I do think we need to have a bit of a conversation about Claude Jutra, who made this movie, who is Fernand in this sure. in this film as well, yeah. who has a kind of a similar history as Woody Allen, or at least as complicated of a history as Woody Allen does now. Where it's different is this. 
Did you read about how Claude Dutra died? Yeah, creepy. It's kind of, it's mm-hmm. very, uh, not romantic, but it's like out of a film, actually. It's pretty fascinating. Well, it is out of a film because it mirrors something that he shot. Oh. <laughs> he actually recreated a scene from one of his own films, Oh, basically. that part I missed. I just, I read the, not obituary, uh, one of, I can't remember which newspaper article, but how his body's found several months later mm-hmm. with the note in his pocket drowned in the river. It's fascinating. Yeah, he, uh. Yeah, he was suffering from Alzheimer's, so he had, he basically jumped into the river and killed himself. That is how the end of his life happened. That was in 1986 mm-hmm. when he passed away. Considered one of the, again, forefront of Canadian cinema, was heralded great at the time. There are schools in Quebec that were named after him, streets, streets. that were named after him. And then 20-ish years later, yeah. maybe even 30 no, years 30 later, years. actually. 2016. The, yeah. yeah. 2016, some people came forward and be like, actually, like as a small girl, he sexually assaulted me he was uh yeah he was a pedophile uh, young kids mm-hmm. like young young kids i was a boy and not only that but m- most people knew about it and didn't say anything yeah i got kind of death in venice vibes there was uh, mm-hmm. one account none of the accusers went public but this book cited a few one of the stories was this kid was groomed six years old until 16 that's some fucking weird stuff the fascinating thing about him unlike woody allen he was canceled in 24 hours kyle it was like, yeah, like the book published. The schools were taken off. The streets were renamed. Like it got shut down quick. <laughs> yeah. The ministry of whatever in Quebec, they were like, nope, see you later. Like hardcore. And they were done. Now, as the proponent of like anti-cancel culture, Dave, why are you mad about that? <laughs> <laughs> I will make this one uh, delineation of cancel culture. Sure. I, uh, I think... The problem of what cancel culture has come to mean is a bunch of people on Twitter telling other people to attack somebody uh, for rumors. Sure. What happened here, I don't know. I mean, we I was not aware of this man, of his body of work, or that this controversy, uh, or that this controversy had happened in 2016. I was here, not paying attention to what's going on in Quebec. If Woody Allen had a bunch of streets and schools named after him or we could even look at the black lives matter and all these colonists and slave owners that have statues and schools named after them when that finally hit or the residential schools with uh i can't remember how many canadian fucking forefathers were signing on to that madness and they get their statues taken down and schools names yeah fine fuck them i have no problems with that as long as it's some somewhat corroborated the nuance here a is that allegedly again none of these accusers actually came out in public i mean it's 30 years later so i and the guy's dead so i don't even know what kind of restitution or uh anyways what they could get back for it but reparations or reparations so you know in this scenario it's a little unique because this is not trying to create a civil suit that we've got to sit through and find out who's Mm -hmm. wrong at the end and that's the one nuance that is changed. We are not waiting for a conviction or some actual evidence. We're immediately trying to destroy people's reputations based on re- uh, rumors. This one's interesting. They're not throwing, like nobody burned this film. It's available. It's not off the top 10 yeah, list. on the National Film Board website. And he's got another movie that's considered very high end. that's still uh, probably taught in classes with the asterisks. They always got to talk about what we've learned about him mm-hmm. as a person. They just took his name off. Uh, like they just don't worship him as a French leading figure anymore. I think that's very reasonable. Just like, I don't think, 
yeah, Sir John A and all these people that have uh, their faces everywhere. If we learn that they're assholes, we should not be worshiping them. We can still appreciate that they built a country, but they're all a bunch of fucking assholes. Fine, you know. I don't. Right. I don't want to go to Sir John A. McDonald's school, but if I learn that he helped Canada separate from whatever fucking dominion, great. You know, it's uh, it's human. So I think that's okay. I was actually just surprised that, and maybe it's because it's Quebec. 24 hours is, I mean, they must have known. Yeah, they went quick. When I read about that, it's like, oh man, like they moved at a very quick place to have like buildings renamed, streets renamed. It's like, we're shutting this down. What's fascinating because they presumably can't even read the book in under 24 hours, never mind getting it through legislation. They must have already known that this was going to happen for the acts to come down that quick. (laughs) Just waiting. The the premier basically just had it like ready to go. He's like, I just have to sign it whenever this hits the fan. If I were to make up a story, maybe they already knew. And the whole time they're trying to negotiate with the publishing company to be like, please do not release this book. And then it came out, they're like, all right, fuck it, plan B, everything's gone, tear the signs down. Yeah. So, I don't know. Um, this is a balance. We talked about this with Woody, with Woody Allen. Never mind the YouTube hater. Should we throw away the movie Bananas because he married his stepdaughter and uh, right now is embroiled in this alleged uh, sexual assault of uh, his other stepdaughter when she was a child? Uh, you know, not yet. I mean, if it turns out that he actually has committed these brutal crimes, it is a very strange, right, uh, example, because mm-hmm. it's a very uh, ambiguous story. It's a weird story. I don't really know what's going on there. Should we throw away a Manhattan story? Or should we just not worship him? You know, not name a street, Woody Allen Street. Well, I think that's the part where we're, we're aligned is like, I'm just very anti- burning books or burning films and stuff like that but at the same time yeah we don't need to worship the person like we can kind of have like yeah terrible person i like these one or two films that he made let's just leave it at that and 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 kind of move on i remember when i was in university i found a copy of mein kampf right it's like i think it's important not to throw away even the literature of a monster because we do need to contextualize what all this stuff was otherwise we forget what got us here so i just don't like you know, modern cancel culture where it's vindictive and it's about who can yell the loudest. So that's me on cancel culture. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by hating cancel culture. But accountability. Well, they will be doing his course. We'll be doing his course on cancel culture right after mine on Canadian it won't film. Won't be at a university though. Probably some small community college. Here's a here's a sentence I never thought I'd say out loud. Here's the thing about Mein Kampf. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. Um, is that I worked at the I worked at a bookstore for about three years. I worked at a bookstore. And every six months or so, a customer would confront you where you knew that they were racist. But it's like, oh, I was, I'm trying to find this book and I can't find it on your shelf. <laughs> and they got so upset that we did not sell Mein Kampf yeah. in the bookstore. But it's like, I can't believe you're censoring and, and uh, telling people what they can and cannot read. It's like, well, you can buy it from our website, though. It's not like we were canceling, so you can't buy it. So we just don't stock it. Go to in a the library. Store. Yeah. Buy it online. Yeah. Have a fun. Yeah, go to the library. Get it there. Yeah, like, I don't know. Have fun. And this is, I mean, not to get too far off tangent, but this is why that thinking has led to the so called neo libertarian movement. They're just a bunch of fucking mm. nutters. It's not freedom. You're just angry because nobody will let you hate more. Those are two different opposing. Philosophies. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophies. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Mon Oncle Antoine was released on November 12th, 1971. Ooh, we're, we just passed its 50th anniversary here, Dave. Mm. It's rated 7.5 on IMDb. 
Uh, there's no available rating on Metacritic, but over on Rotten Tomatoes, from five critics, it's at 100%. That's a big pool. Statistically insignificant. <laughs> yeah. It is. I, I agree <laughs> with that. 1,000 plus users, so not very many people of the public have rated this either. It's at 77%. Mm-hmm. It is available to rent on iTunes. There's a Criterion DVD release that you can buy, but no like Blu-ray yet. We should email Johnny and Criterion about their streaming service. It's getting a little annoying. Hey, Johnny C., what's the deal? <laughs> um, you can also stream this, and uh, dummy that I am, should have checked this before renting it. Uh, you can actually stream this for free on the National Film Board of Canada's website. Uh, Kyle, as well. it's on YouTube. Oh, it's on YouTube <laughs> as well. There you go. <laughs> its budget was 750000 Canadian dollars Ooh, it's back a big in one. 1971. That's a big one. But I don't know how much it made. Nothing. I have Nobody no watches Canadian movies. <laughs> I'm, I, I have a feeling it must have done really good in Quebec, though. Probably Quebec had a bunch of you know why, but it's also government funded, so they don't need to record the ticket sales. It's grant money. True. Yeah. I do know this did get a U.S. release though, because Roger Ebert gave a review of this movie. Oh, so that's interesting. It was released in the okay. U.S. Right. Um, its plot description is set in cold rural Quebec at Christmas time. We follow the coming of age of a young boy and the life of his family, which owns the town's general store and undertaking business. Whew, what a what a great description! It makes me so frothing at the mouth <laughs> to go watch this movie. I need to see this. <laughs> Oscar bait. It stars Jacques Gagnon as Benoit, Jean Duceppe as Uncle Antoine, Olivier Thibault as Aunt Cécile, and Claude Joutre as Fernand. Anything you want to say about these actors? No, I mean, as one might expect, they're French-Canadian actors. There's actually not a lot of information, and from a previous generation. The only interesting thing is, I mean, it sounds like many of them had uh, prominent TV and stage careers, but probably on French-speaking television, so I actually don't recognize any of the names. The Boy has nothing. So I think he just walked away from it. There's two yeah, titles. Two, two credits. credits, yeah. Um, Jean Doucet was kind of, the only thing that I thought was interesting, he was the youngest of 18 children, Kyle. Jesus. <laughs> but that thing. I mean, my grandmother comes from 11 kids. Oh, wow. So. Yeah. yeah. So that's the generational thing, I guess. I don't know. Whatever Catholic, so yada, yada, yada. But mm-hmm. his parents... Uh, died when he was very young because they must have been really fucking old and uh, he was raised by his eldest sister i think he was going to be a monk and then he didn't like it so he became an actor which is fun (laughs) that's the thing you have to think if he's 18 kids like his at bare minimum his oldest sister was like 20 or something like that like (laughs) um oh boy yeah, that's really about it. I mean, uh, Olivier Thibault, also apparently quite a famous comedian and actress of her era, but I, you know, her face looks familiar in this film, but I couldn't name you why. Maybe she was on some Canadian television shows or documentaries I've seen before, but I, right. I got nothing. Um, all of this information, by the way, I found on a website called Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia, because none of them are Wikipediable <laughs> or Googleable. So, um, I got lucky. Yeah, found a website from Canada. Shout out to that website. Probably also government-funded, you communist. Well, this is written by Clement Perron and Claude Jutra, directed by Claude Jutra. Here is the other piece of stuff we're going to throw at you. Here's our, our another history lesson. Yeah. I think we need to know two pieces of crucial Canadian slash Quebec history oh, when we talk about this film. Let's do it. So first, the asbestos strike of 1949. Do you remember that? Oh, man, we were so young. Like it was yesterday. Oh. Dave, picture this. Midnight on Valentine's Day, 1949. And miners, that's 
miners with I was ERS, say, not miners you know, ORS. We've already started this podcast talking about pedophiles, so let's be careful. Yeah. The miners walk off the job site in a few different mines, and almost all of these people are francophones, French-speaking people, and they, along with their union, are demanding better working conditions, including, among these, were no more asbestos dust outside or inside the mill. Somewhat reasonable. Say no you to cancer. From it. Imagine that. Yeah. A 15 cent an hour raise. <sighs> That's asking a lot, cents. though, pal. I mean, who's going to pay in for that? In 1940, probably, I guess it was. The consumer? Yeah. An, increase for, an increase for night work and double time for Sundays and holidays. That's what they're asking for. It's actually interesting, actually, to talk about this movie in, in a present context, because so many unions are going on strike right now. As we're recording this, actually, the, uh, the John Deere union finally came to an agreement where they got a bunch of stuff. They got, they got like a... Like the lawnmower God, like a 20%. company? Yeah, yeah. Mm, like cares? they walked off the job for the last six weeks where they haven't been do, coming back in. Do you know who cares about that? Rich white people, Kyle. <laughs> people who like golf. Actually, I would say it's actually more poor poor white people care about that. John but yes. D. Oh, well, the workers. But the only reason they concede is because the only people using those machines are, well, I guess, farmers. Right? They make farm yes. equipment. Is that yeah, right? that's right. All right. Correct. That's the big one that I know of. Mm. Anyways, uh, there's that. There's the IATSE stuff that people are doing. There's uh, the, the Kellogg's one just got wrapped up here, too, where they walked off the job for a couple you of subscribe months. subscribe to, so. like, a communist newsletter or something? You're very... No, uh... I'm just on Twitter. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm on far-left Twitter, Dave, so I know all of this stuff that's going on. Canadian, Canadian Leninist. Up with the people, Dave. Up with the people. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just saying, in the context of the modern day where so many labor movements are going on, this is another example of that. So these demands, by the way, Seen as radical, owners didn't want to do it, the workers. But here's the here's the weird thing. Well, well I'm not weird, but one thing to add, the owners were American or Anglophone uh Western Canadians. No French owning uh no French owned mines. So that's a big That's the that's the key. Yeah. That's a key thing here and like kind of that uh, antagonism that uh Quebec and the rest of English speaking Canada's had. The other big thing though of who was representing the miners was of course their union that they mm -hmm. had, and also the Canadian Catholic Federation of Labor. Mm -hmm. So the Catholic Church was actually in the business of, of helping out the labor. So technically, this strike was illegal. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very upfront. This was an illegal strike, quote unquote, illegal strike. So the Quebec Premier, Maurice Duplessis, uh, sided with the companies, but his own party was closely allied with the Catholic Church. So this is where things get really awkward. So the people that are backing his party are siding with the workers. He is siding with the company's friction. Strike is talked about throughout the rest of Canada. Media was definitely sympathetic towards the workers. And one of the people who were reporting and making a name for themselves was future Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He was one of the people on the ground. Yeah, yeah. he was one on the ground reporting this. Wrote a book about it afterwards. Or uh, edited a book afterwards. Get about out of people's bedrooms, Canada. Fuck off. It's not your business, right? I agree. Um, this strike would stretch six weeks. And the main mining company finally, having enough of this, started hiring scabs. Some of the workers crossed the picket line. Violence ensues. People are arrested. Railway lines are blown up. Cars are overturned. Like, it got pretty violent. This also started dividing the Catholic Church in Quebec. So some priests and other clergy supported the companies, while others supported the strikes. The, the strikers, the archbishop gave an impassioned speech that asked other Catholics to send money to the miners. The premier then demanded that he be sent over to Vancouver and get out of Quebec. Uh, the church refused, and that is this huge change in Quebec society where now there's a breakdown of the church and state, which had kind of been going hand in hand up until that point. So in the end, 
The striking miners did reach an agreement, but all they got was this very small pay increase, not even the 15 cents they asked for. A very small pay increase, and many of them, if not most of them, didn't even get their jobs back. So that was the result of this strike. And at least for Trudeau and other writers... Woo! Capitalism, yay! (laughs) Um, And at least for Trudeau and other writers, thinkers, politicians, they were able to spin this then into their careers as this new Quebec and shaping the idea of what Quebec needed to be in the next generation. Really straight from this, we go into what is now called the Quiet Revolution. The Quiet Revolution. The Quiet Revolution. <laughs> We're going to do ASMR for the rest of this episode. This well, is, I am with my mouth uh, clicks. That's right. <laughs> so this is, this is essentially, this Quiet Revolution is the decoupling of the Catholic Church and the provincial government. There's also a lot more into this, but go and read the Wikipedia article because this it's probably not oh, relevant yeah. to what we need Rabbit to say hole. There are here. a lot of hyperlinks in that article. But this is actually the beginning of the splitting of political parties into two camps. You are either a federalist or you're a sovereigntist. Meaning, for the federalists, you want to stay a part of Canada, but be your own unique nation, while the others want to physically leave Canada and become their own country. So the asbestos strike start, sows that division, and the subsequent elections in the province start the crumbling of the church. So instead of them running the health care and education... They're taken out of that. The government takes over running that. And then the expansion of Quebec-owned utilities, specifically hydro and electricity and all that kind of stuff. We could then go and talk about how this impacted the Canadian Constitution and then how Quebec really tried to fight its way out of Canada twice through the Meech Lake Accords and the two uh, separatist referendums uh, votes, referendums that they did where they narrowly lost both times of separating from Canada. But I think what we can agree on here, Dave, is that... While others will try and make that claim for like Alberta or the Maritimes or the North even, Quebec really truly is its own unique thing within Canada. It has its own language laws. It has its actual own provincial laws. It's actually really interesting when you go online and you want to like, you know, sign up for a sweepstakes or, or, or sign up for anything. There's usually a huge paragraph at the bottom that says none of this applies to Quebec. Well, they have, a different, own laws. They have a different legal system. They run on a civil Correct. code, not a tort system. Based on French law instead of English law. Yeah. So speaking of separatists, I forgot to mention this. Jean Ducep, the actor, is the father of mm-hmm. Gilles Ducep, the separatist. I was wondering <laughs> if he was or not. I was I forgot to check that out. I forgot about Gilles that. Gilles Ducep, by the way, if people don't know, was the leader of the Parti Quebecois for a Bloc? while, was he not? Parti? Bloc Quebec? Anyways, he was an asshole. So in this movie, my uncle Antoine. This is this is sitting in place right before the asbestos strike. So again, people would have probably known this and why it's important that they're working at an asbestos mine. We didn't. And why it's important that they're bringing the church into this and why it's important that it's a small mining town. Like all that makes more sense. Contemporary audiences in 1971 would probably have picked up on that. What also should be said is that this is also an interesting point in Canadian film specifically. So Canadian film, as we mentioned here at the beginning, started in documentary. When are you going to make a documentary about me? I'm ready for my close-up. And that still felt to this day. But many of our, our auteurs, if you want to use that fancy Ooh, word, Kyle, yeah. many of our Canadian auteurs... Kyle's giving it up. He, began, he acknowledges the word <laughs> began <now>. making. <laughs> I say, all of them started like, making documentary shorts and then features and then transitioned into making narrative films. And this is kind of the start of that as we see more and more fiction films being made and marketed internationally with that struggle of trying to define like who we are. Uh, that's true for Clement Perron, who had been working on a bunch of documentaries in the 60s. And that's also true for Claude Jutra, who made a short film that I really want to see that's just called Wrestling. But it's about the old Montreal Forum 
and the history of the wrestlers who came through there, which has its own unique history, which is fascinating, which is ties to the mob and all this other stuff. There's a, there's a fascinating history of, of that sport. Just a side note for people who don't know this, Montreal was built by the mafia and uh, mm-hmm. you should look that up too. It is a fascinating counterculture thing I over f- there. Yeah. You know, I feel, and maybe there is a, a movie out there already made like this, but I want someone like a, like a French Canadian Scorsese or something to do that story about the concrete <laughs> of showing like the mafia yeah. building up and stuff yeah. like that. Jutra had made a feature film in 1963, but this was kind of his return to fiction filmmaking. And he was considered even at the time as being at the forefront of Canadian film auteurs. This movie was certainly celebrated at the time when a bunch of Canadian awards, it was submitted to the Oscars for, be- for best foreign film, which is what it was called at the time but wasn't selected in its shortlist. As far as the making of this movie, I cannot really find out a whole lot about the making of this movie other than Perone was influenced by his own life, so that's what he brought into writing of this movie. Jutra was a student at the National Film Board, so had some connections for when they gave him the money to make this. Still considered great, even though its reputation is being a bit tarnished because of the stuff that we've already talked about with Claude. One article I did find, I think it's quoted in the Wikipedia too, is there's a... There's an interesting counterbalancing reflection on the quiet revolution, which is something we've seen in 1971 in general, that all countries and all cultures were going through this massive post-war upheaval. And uh, I think Quebec gets a special name because, as you brought up, it has a fairly unique cultural position in North America, but this is a fairly universal theme. So when you say the Oscars didn't really acknowledge this, I mean, we, we felt this too, unless you know... Quebec and what they went through, this movie doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Just the small town people and they just have this really weird interaction, strange jobs you wouldn't expect. There's right. a car at the beginning. There's no cars at the end. Like it's it's just a little bit jilted. Right. And where, where, where I kind of flounder a little bit is like, whose fault is that ultimately? And what I mean by that is like, I don't think it's necessarily Quebec's problem or even this filmmaker's issue if people don't know that history it might be a problem that schools don't teach it properly and what i mean is like for something huge let's say there's a different film about a small town in poland set in 1935 and there's like these elements of like oh like there's some fascism stuff going on here that's only briefly kind of mentioned like we instinctively are going to like oh we understand what the significance of this is we understand why that's important because we're filling in all the holes that the film doesn't necessarily have to fill in for us. We only do that when the film's... It's different here because we don't have that context. No, we only do that when the film's actually made well. I mean, we talked about what makes a film timeless, right? I mean, you watch... I mean, North American films, you watch Casablanca. Do you need to have a full understanding of how Madagascar, um, Morocco... Morocco. How Morocco figures into uh, the war and and its position in North Africa? You don't. It's not that important because the narrative kind of works around that. And it's really about the characters. Sure. Having a documentary... And I think this maybe... Maybe this is why uh, documentaries are not as widely palatable because you don't necessarily just watch documentary to learn about something you have there's also a presumption that you already know what's leading up to the part you have to learn about you know you can't you can't watch a documentary about what did i just watched i watched uh, ella fitzgerald without having some understanding of civil rights problems slavery you know american culture jazz it's not teaching everything uh, from zero i think this is the thing about the difference maybe between documentarian uh, perspectives and narrative or fiction ones this movie is right in the middle. There's aspects where 
you know, there's great scenes. Like you said, uh, as this thing kind of breaks apart, it becomes a real movie towards the end. We watch sure. this boy struggle with, throws his hand up like, I really want to go on this job to help yeah. you with this dead body. He really feels like he can handle looking at a dead body until he has to look at a dead body. And it right? turns out the kid is around his age and he just shuts down. It's shot beautifully. And we see uh, Uncle Antoine by that point having his own existential breakdown. It, it is a little bit uh, rough cut towards the end as he completely falls literally off the wagon. Leading up to that, yeah, it's just a camera in a store, right? Following around two boys throwing True. snowballs, yeah, yeah. you know? It's like, I, I don't get it. You know, there's a mine at the beginning and now we're in this weird little town where everybody lines up in front of a general store to watch them open a curtain to unveil Christmas decorations. Yeah. right? It's like, I don't even understand what's going on. So, no, it's interesting. Well, again, I think that does go back to the documentary field of this where it's like, we're just documenting this. Right. We're not trying to comment on this. Again, that is what most Canadian films are. There's not a lot of voiceover often. It's just documenting well, what language going, do you voice over what's going on. Right? Both? <laughs> I do. Let's talk a little bit about the, the performance then because if we do look at the last half of like the journey to collect the dead body and then to bring it back, I do think that that's probably the best part of the movie mm -hmm. for me personally. I, I really enjoyed that journey of this boy, again, thinking he's man enough or adult enough to, to do this journey with his uncle and then find out that the uncle is like crumbling in on himself. He's such a, a lively person in the general store, but is like drunk and like crumbling in on like repressed memories and stuff like that as we go on. And then him struggling to keep everything afloat. You know, in reflection, whoever the actor was for the uncle, I can't remember which one of these fine gentlemen. If you think about the beginning when uh, he comes down last down the stairs of the store when that other weird guy who can, whose hair is so thick and permy can put a pencil in it. When he comes down, he's already miserable. And uh, in reflection, I'm like, that actually is a great, and this so maybe this is because they're all stage actors. He can do that thing where he is, uh, the character's already depressed, but then when they have the party through imbibing all the alcohol, it becomes lively and performative. And then when he goes back on the job, he slowly breaks down. Remember that scene with the super wide angle thing, and he's like like doing what I'm doing, smack mm. his lips, eating that fucking raw meat uh, as the boy's like having this breakdown, staring at him. We're like, how can he be so dispassionate, yeah. right? And it turns out he's not, right? It's, it's an act. He's trying to show the uh, mom that it's not that big of a deal until he's going home. And he's like, no, I can't do it anymore because it is a big deal. I fucking hate it. That part's yeah. amazing. It's a beautiful little moment. It's just, it's surrounded by a lot of stuff I don't care about. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I think like he, the biggest thing I was struggling with is like, I don't really understand why we started the way we started, mm -hmm. which is like that the father and the boy who eventually dies are there on the asbestos plant. And then the guy quits. The, the father quits, goes off to a different job and leaves his family behind. And then we're introduced mm -hmm. to the, the rest of the characters. And we don't really see that other guy. We see him once more and then a second time at the very, very end. But it's like he's almost like an afterthought but yes. until he kind of comes back. Yeah. So I don't necessarily mind him coming in and out. I just don't know if I wanted the movie to start with him. It feels like he's going to be the main character. And then it's like, no, he's not. He actually has the least importance in this story in some ways. The big question I have, I've never thought about this question before, Dave. So in this movie, we see that they're part of this undertaking family and the young boy uh, Benoit is there helping the priest and they've had the service everyone leaves and then they rip the clothes off the dead mm -hmm. body and it's a naked body that they go and bury do we bury people with clothes on or do we take their clothes off when we bury it I don't know 
I actually have no idea. Yeah, I've never opened one. <laughs> I never thought about it before for some reason. I don't know now. We live in such a materialistic society. I mean, in the old days, you know, you talk about uh, pharaohs, or you talk about the one percenters of ancient times would be buried with their artifacts or their wives or their slaves or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck it was. But in this time of little means, do people even save that shit? Because it costs so much money. I don't know. They probably don't care as much now. I mean, you could go to a Walmart and have a fake suit put together for like under a hundred bucks. So, you know, we should probably have asked uh, an undertaker to be on this podcast with us to test the veracity of the... uh, I, I might have asked a French Canadian filmmaker to be part of this podcast. <laughs> um, but we'll never know. We'll never know. Don't let this mention of a French Canadian filmmaker distract you from the fact that in 1998, The Undertaker threw mankind off hell in a cell and plummeted 16 feet through an announcer's table. But I, I do think the church itself is actually very important why they're including them into there. Because I haven't checked recently, but as far as I understand, even t- like t- in 2021, the like percentage of we'll call secular people, people who don't go to church is the highest in Quebec out of any other province. So the importance of the church has like just nosedived in that province over like the last 50 years. So to see this movie being like, they're super important in the community still uh, and seeing them kind of broken down is, is I think interesting. Like that, that specter is there throughout this entire thing. But I do think it's important for that boy to see the old person that's dead and think, yeah, I can do this. And then eventually see a person at his own age and like, oh, I don't know if I can <laughs> make this a living. I also, I'll just quickly point out, and this is pure uh, rhetoric, I haven't researched any of this, but I wonder if there's a correlation where the church and the people are separate and we have a much more, if not liberal-minded, at least independent thinking culture like in Quebec versus Mm -hmm. just theoretically a province like Alberta, which has a strong presence of Christian morality. And for some odd reason, Kyle, there's a lot more hate speech in this fucking place than anywhere else that I've lived in, uh, in Canada. I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. Anyways, I don't, uh... it's good. I mean, we all follow apparently a uh, a man who, uh, you know, told everyone to love each other and not judge one another. It, it, it makes sense. Hey, fuck you, man. <laughs> it makes sense the followers of this How dare you tell me to love each other? <laughs> would uh, want to hate and fucking kill everybody else. Good, yeah. good. That's me but and so I don't know. Do you, I guess the quick answer too is, do you agree that this is also... I don't think it's even that subtle about there being that division between English-speaking no. Canada with, with well, French-speaking ones. I agree with you. You know, only after the research, it makes sense why the, the movie opens the way it does. You know, why is there the yeah. only English-speaking character talking down to the French laborer who's trying to fix the truck? I mean, that is the allegory of the actual situation in reflection of the uh, the asbestos strike. You know, why is there an undertaker and this kid who's coming to age, they're trying to make these comments about French society. Absolutely. You know, why include a Catholic priest who's kind of off to one side and not taking over the, the management of the town? Um, why do they have the uh, mine owner come down and throwing... Right, yeah, throw uh, these candy gifts, canes, like these Santa Claus, yeah. yeah, and uh, and then you see it's kind of like a scab algorithm. Some people run out and get it, and some people are so upset they shut their doors. And you know he's reflecting everything that's going on in Quebec culture, and we don't get any of it because we didn't grow up in it and we <laughs> don't speak French. So when you Wikipedia this stuff now that it, we don't have Britannica, uh, we go online and we learn it. If we watch this again, Kyle, I'm sure we would be enwrapped. Uh, just for the historical, mm-hmm. the movie itself is not that you know fun to watch. It's not built in a titillating way, even though you know this guy uh, 
peeps uh, a if French woman. I give woman. you some notes, uh, Mr. Zutra, yeah. uh, could you make this more to the lady, please? <laughs> I, want more, I, want, I want more titillation. You know what I would have liked? Uh, that second half of the film where we're in the boy's head for that to have been the whole movie. Hmm. Right, yeah, stylistic. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think yeah. we could even. I could even forego. Yeah, fine. Start with that asbestos scene and do like ten minutes of them in the store, but get on that journey because yeah. that's where it gets kind of fascinating, and interesting, and maybe even. I mean, this is us now giving notes to a fifty-year-old film. I apologize, but maybe have more of a dialogue between the uncle and the boy as they're going yeah. there at the very least to bring some of these themes to the forefront. Even that part where they're maybe they're just trying to press on you that this is a coming-of-age story of this boy, but. They do the peeping Tom thing to watch this randomly right. beautiful French woman come in to take off her top. You know, mm. why is that in this film? It, it is kind of weird to think about. N again, yeah, not to be too uh, too overly critical, but after the end of the film and reading about what this movie presumably is supposed to be pointing at, that part is unnecessary. The, the kid is already doing his, like he's tried to uh, act on his love for yeah, his- we see him yeah, female counterpart. He's turned down in a sense. And there's great tension there. You get already great insight of what it's like to be, you know, 12, 13, 14. Even with the mm -hmm. girl who's like stuck in it, loves the attention, hates it because she's not sure of herself. That stuff is great. And then you'd have this one yeah. five minute perversion for no reason where we could just see a beautiful yeah. French woman take off her top and then you leave and you're like, why did that happen? It, 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 it is weird. <laughs> um, although you do get that bit of comedy that I like of them moving around the nails yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, bucket and people keep tripping over and everything. Yeah. Um, the, the one part, the only part that I hated is actually very similar to what you just brought up. So they're ogling that woman. But then when they come back, right, he isn't able to get the casket onto the carriage, but he brings his uncle home at the very least. And then I think his dad, I don't know, but I think his dad is like, what the heck is going on? Like, we're supposed to have a casket. It's not here. And now we have to go and find this uh, casket again. No, sorry, sorry. That's a coffin mm -hmm. that they're going mm -hmm. after. You know the difference between a coffin and a casket? Oh, is the coffin Caskets the Caskets have hinges. Huh. Coffins you have to nail down huh. the top, so. Pine box. The young boy, Benoit, falls asleep. And then he has that vision, that like dream of the woman bouncing around again, dream. shirtless. What the fuck was that? I really hated it. Yeah. I really hated it. And, and and maybe even not for the reason you think. It's like, whatever, the, the, the topless woman, whatever. That's actually not what I'm mad about. I sound like there being that flight of fancy I, anyways. Yeah, I don't understand. What is this I always to represent? Yeah. Yeah, this is, I always talk about this. I truly feel if you're going to have that kind of stuff in your movie, you have to have it super early. Mm. Because for me, you're having this realism, 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 completely non-realistic thing back to realism. And it's like, well, you're kind of breaking the contract you've made with your audience. It's the same reason I hate that ending of Sunday Bloody Sunday. Mm -hmm. where, right? Where I love wall. that. That movie's really good. And then you're like, I'm going to break the fourth wall and I speak to the camera. Mm. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> you haven't done that for the entire movie. This is really weird. There's something else I just watched that was similar that was talking about how you're not supposed to think that it's really happening because of some vignette at the end where, you know, you're not sure if this mm. is reality. I don't know. That stuff's so weird. Uh, it's Avengers Endgame, actually. Avengers Endgame. To your point, I think that if they were going to do that, yeah, he should have at least, or maybe, you know, he had dreams throughout the whole movie where we could right. get insight into his, um, you know, teenage mind. If you're going to do that too, why are they on a trampoline? Like, it's just such a weird... 
I know. It's, just, it's so weird and out of place, I find. If you want to make a movie about sex, make a movie about sex. Kyle talked last week about how he loves to get horny. You know, that's fine, right? But don't throw it in the middle of, like, it's just a, ah, so weird. I mean, he's- I just gr- want to point out that that was technically two, two weeks ago, but yes, I did talk about that. <laughs> he saw, you know, <laughs> he's just seen a dead body, had to rescue his, got beat by his- Dead drunk uncle had to rescue him from the snow, sees his aunt having an affair. I mean, he's so broken. And then he has this dream mm-hmm. about some woman jumping up and down in a topless uh, corset. You know, like, I don't even understand what's going on anymore. So, um, maybe that's a French culture thing. Maybe they, I mean, that's an inside joke there. Like, uh, right? Maybe there's that's, a saying about the aristocrats. jumping up and down, lost on me. We're done here. The machine said that we have to wrap this up here. First off, we're going to go to Critics Corner. I'm going to be reading two positive reviews. I apologize, but the negatives I found, uh, I thought were not very well written. <laughs> so I didn't like them. <laughs> so I'm not reading them, but there are, there's, there's negative ones that are out there that you can find. Uh, what I'm doing is yes, I am opening up the book. Weird sex and snowshoes because at the end, the, the writer, Catherine Monk reviews every movie that she talks about in the book. And some, she says like, I get why it's important, but I hate it. Or like, this is a great one. So she rates mon uncle Antoine with five, Canadian maple leaves out of five Canadian Ooh, maple leaves. Just so so you know. sweet. I'm going to read the whole thing here. It's a page, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Oh my God. So this will give you more insight into this. Still referred to as one of the greatest Canadian films of all time, Mon Uncle Antoine marked the beginning of narrative feature film in Canada, right alongside Don Shabib's Going Down the Road, and set up much of the cinematic grammar we use in this country to this day with its use of natural light, blue hues, lack of narrative artifice, and abundance of snow-covered landscapes. It talks a little bit about the, the background of the characters, and as Benoit and his family get the store ready for Christmas, Uncle Antoine is summoned to a house a few miles away where a young man close to Benoit's age dies from a fever. Antoine obliges and trudges through a blizzard to pick up the body with Benoit in tow. They unceremoniously place the dead teen in a plain casket, then head back out into the cold night. Antoine, tired and depressed, gets sloshed. The sleigh bounces out of control, and the coffin falls off the buggy, leaving Benoit to pick up the body, which has now tumbled out of the coffin. The body came out of the coffin? I don't remember that either, so I don't know. I, I think that... Maybe that's a different cut. I don't know. Maybe, Absurd, maybe she grotesque. what she knows. <laughs> Absurd, grotesque, and yet oddly funny, the scene shows Benoit wrestling with the corpse in the cold, empty night as Antoine, the incarnation of the old generation, numbs himself to the harsh reality around him. The image is almost a definitive one in Canadian film as it incorporates the landscape, death, a mirror image of self, and an undeniable sense of loneliness and uh, outsiderism into one single frame. The melancholic progression into awareness is an intrinsic element in almost all Canadian cinema that followed. Can I just point out, I think she watched yeah. a different movie than us. No, like up <laughs> to know. that point, but he, he doesn't wrestle with a body in the snow. Well, he wrestles with the casket for sure, casket, not the body. Sure. He definitely wrestles with the okay. casket. Yeah, yeah. It must have been like a French director's cut or something. Maybe. Uh, There's the Canadian checklist. So these are all the things that this movie does that are in a bunch of Canadian films. Uh, Number one, landscape covered in snow. It's coming of age story, subversion of institutions, the English-French relationship unbalanced and festering, an ironic sense of humor, and semi-detached outsider perspective. That is what uh, (laughs) this movie includes. So every Russian film is a Canadian film. Correct. (laughs) Maybe even Swedish. Imagine any Arctic country. <laughs> Actually, you know what? 
I think out of any country, I think Canada does have a lot more in common with some of the, the, the Nordic yeah, countries man. filmographies and like books. Bergman and stuff yeah. is much more Canadian focused. Yeah, I kind of agree. Yeah, product of your environment. Pauline Kale also talked about this movie. This is what she said. When it opened in Washington, D.C., Russell Baker wrote a column saying that it was the most extraordinary movie and adding it is almost impossible to explain why. He came close, though, when he said it's like walking into one of Wren's small London churches just when you have come to believe that the entire world looks like the Pentagon. Seen through the eyes of a boy who lives with his ribald storekeeper undertaker uncle, it's a reminiscence of Christmas time in an asbestos mining town in Quebec in the 40s. In one sequence, the mine owner rides through the town in his carriage, tossing trinkets at the children of the mine workers, and the parents are torn, not wanting to deprive their children of the toys, yet humiliated to see them pick up the, this miserly beneficence. We watch the hesitant, eager children and the parents divided against themselves, and we too are divided between the beauty of perception that brings us such moments and the anguish of having, from this time on, to live with this perception. Claude Zutra, who made this plangent, simple masterpiece, plays the role of Fernand, the store clerk who dallies with the uncle's wife and loves the townspeople without illusions for what they are. Uh, Jutra is present in the film the way Jean Renoir is present in Rules of the Game, and Fernand is the soul of the movie. So that's what she wrote about this movie. How many maple leaves, though? She does a four scale, so she gave it four Canadian maple leaves. Okay, so that's what the critics had to say. I guess we, this does bring us to the question that we ask every week. Does this hold up and do you still think it is culturally relevant? What says you, Dave? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure the film itself holds up on its own merits. Uh, I think it's all contextual. And I think only Canadian mm. film historians will care. I think thematically, not just in Quebec, uh, you know, this idea of coming of age, existential crises, and if we want to contextualize the political unrest and all this kind of uh, worker suffrage rights and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those things haven't changed that much. They're better in one sense, like more developed, but as you brought up, People still need to strike. There's a huge rallying cry to uh, rekindle the light of socialism and communism. It's uh, not going to work, people. You could maybe uh, get a bunch of young Marxists and watch this and think there's something in it. But I don't know, Cal. I feel like this is a bit past its prime. And uh, we got a good conversation out of it because yeah. we're Canadian. But I can't imagine anyone caring what happened in Quebec. Yeah, I, I'm a bit split. I, I do think that there is... There's some cultural relevance still from this film. We've talked about it here already. Does it hold up? I'm, I'm going to have to say no. Not that I think it's bad. That, it's not that it's bad. It's like, yeah, I think it has lost its luster a little bit. And I'm not even talking about the filmmaker. I'm just talking about the film itself. Mm. So I have a feeling. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. I, I think I'll probably like this more if I watch it again. But I also do think it's going to be one of those things where in that sight and sound poll, you'll see American films do this all the time where they jump onto the list and they're gone mm -hmm. after one or two more surveys. This might start to, you'll see slowly drop off that top 10 list. Well, the, but we'll see. Yeah, I the only we'll asterisk see. is, are there still recognizable good Canadian films coming out that can challenge in this type of poll? Right. And uh, as you and I are discussing at the beginning of this episode, I couldn't name them. I, I know that makes me sound so nationally ignorant, but I just, I don't know, Kyle. Like, when's the last time you you'll, watched you'll, a Canadian You'll see the, the French Canadian filmmakers. They have their own kind of industry that's going on over of there. Of course, and yeah. Again, I keep bringing his name up, but Xavier Dolan is doing great work. I like his stuff quite a bit. 
Um, and so the younger generation is coming up and I think doing challenging work there too. Yeah, we'll so. see. We'll see. Again, it's going to be a future thing. I don't know, like right this second if there is or mm-hmm. not. But I will say this was voted as being the best Canadian film of all time. And again, in the last two sight and sound polls that have been conducted. And it is a film that has been design- designated and preserved as a masterwork by the Audio Visual Preservation Trust of Canada. I don't mind that, right? I mean, when we learn the context yeah. of how it was built, I think it has to be. Because uh, it's so directly addressing uh, social, mm-hmm. cultural themes in Canada. It's just, you know, it's 2021. Let's move on. That is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. You can also look for us on YouTube where we do trailer reactions as well as short video, uh, short film reviews on there. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. If you'd like to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, I'm very curious, Dave. What do you what we're gonna rate this? We do have to put this onto our list. So out of five, five Canadian maple leaves, how many maple leaves are you gonna give to this yeah, movie? Yeah, my, my syrup won't be that sweet. I I think that uh in ins- again, another little side digression. Like 90% of maple syrup is made in Quebec as well. <laughs> That's right. So just, or, just so you know. Yeah, Northern Ontario. But uh yeah. Albertans may never have even seen a maple tree. At least there's no rats, right, Kyle? That is correct. Um, Thank God. Yeah, in spite of all the great sort of historical significance and contextually thinking that we could get more out of it a second time, I don't know. I I wouldn't pop this in the old DVD player again. Um, mm. So I I will stay in the middle. I think I'm going to be in a three, a three, so that okay. it's not a hate. But I just, I don't know. It's its fine. I think a three for me is, is fine. <laughs> it's, it's just fine. I'm pretty close to you. I'm going to give it a 3.5 for right now on my initial watch. So yeah, so it's not bad. I, I liked it quite a bit. But uh, it's one of those things. This happens occasionally on this show where I enjoy the conversation maybe more than I mm-hmm. was like enthusiastic about the, the movie itself. Now, that being said, that is going to average to 3.25, although it'll be rounded down to a three. It, oh boy, <laughs> it is tying with two movies. There could not be more different. Dirty Harry and Escape from the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Do you think this is oh my God, better than yeah. both of those films in the middle or, or worse than both of those films? I think culturally and artistically it has to go on top, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's trying for more in its context. It accomplished yeah. more. So it has to go on top of those other two. I agree with that. So I just like, there's no way I can put this below Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Like, that's just, I just can't do that. But Roddy McDowell is so convincing. Well, entering our list here then at the new number 12 position is My Uncle Antoine or Mon Oncle Antoine. Remember that joke in Shang-Chi with Ben Kinsley? Was that? He was talking about how he's inspired to become an actor by watching Planet of the Apes. Mm. And he's like, it's amazing. Right. If an ape can do it, then I can be an actor too. I can do it. <laughs> oh Roddy uh, the only good thing about that movie okay so Ew, pretty hilarious random cameo by the way don't go and watch the Eternals it's really bad it's a bad bad movie uh, let's see what we're watching next week here Dave push this little button Marvel here family. well we're done going around the world we've had this international cinema here for the last little bit we are coming back to the US 
getting our car action on and we're going to talk about Vanishing Point, which is also kind of this big cult classic movie that uh, I've never watched before. So that's what we're going to be watching here next week is Vanishing Point. All right. Is it about drawing in one point perspective or? Correct. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what it's about. About a draftsman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Boy, I could go for some maple syrup right now. It does sound really good. You know, first you got to suck out all that sap and then uh, you got to cook that shit down, man. Reduce, reduce, reduce. Unbelievable. Eat my waffles. Now, what do you put syrup on? The only two things I really do is going to be pancakes and waffles. However, a little pro tip for people out there. A really great treat that will give you diabetes real quick. Vanilla ice cream, a little bit of maple syrup, and like a couple of chocolate chips. Perfection. Mm. It's really good. Um, although I can eat maple syrup by itself too. So wow. that I'm, I'm that person. Wow. This is why I saw in the watch <laughs> you worked out at 11 p.m. last night. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Robot sex is all about the fluid exchange.